0: Happy New Year. Today we're bringing you an interview with Caroline Hargrove. She's the CTO at Babylon Health. The interview was recorded back in the summer, but we thought it would make an excellent New Year's Eve special. Um, It's a meaty, long interview, but loads of interesting insight from Caroline here. This is Tech Talks, your normally twice-a-week technology podcast, although a little less frequent during the festive period, uh, where we bring you interviews with leaders from across the industry and some technology news. Joining me today for a New Year's Eve show, we've got Akish, fresh from Tier 4. Um, we're, we're not recording this on New Year's Eve, I'll be perfectly blunt, but Akish, what will you be doing tonight?
1: Uh, New Year's Eve, New Year's Eve, um, probably the same as Christmas really, just sat at home watching TV. Um,
0: <laughs> on Zoom, endlessly.
1: On Zoom, Happy New Year memes. Um and I think, uh, do you know what, do you know, one thing one thing I'm really looking forward to this year, you know, when everyone's just like on New Year's Eve, you know, moving ahead with the people in my life, all this like standard Instagram meme culture shit. Yeah, yeah. I'm really looking forward to what next, like what people will be putting up. Um, I've already Wait, I'm seen really a few looking forward around. To that,
0: that top nine, you know, my my year top nine grid yes
1: yes your most (laughs) liked photos that will be yes i am looking forward to that supposed
0: to be your most liked i thought you could just pick nine Mm -mm.
1: i think instagram sends you it or whatever where it says like most the one that got the most traction um and i'm guessing it's probably going to be in some sort of a park outdoor setting uh (laughs) nature With a face mask on, who the hell knows? But what a year, eh? Um and also Merry Christmas to all the listeners as well, actually. Because Yeah, yeah, I didn't get on before Christmas. So um yeah, hope you all had a good one and happy, happy new year for the next few hours, whenever you listen to it, I guess. Exactly, exactly. Yes. Um <clears throat> one thing that I'd have really appreciated,
0: we were chatting about this before I hit record, right? You've been on a lot of Zoom calls with family, hmm. as have I. Hmm. I hadn't really appreciated that people who generally work Consistently, have actually got quite good at video conferencing. So, yeah. the whole joke about can you see me? Uh, I can hear you, but I can't see you type thing has kind of largely disappeared in a work setting over the last few months because most of the time people are kind of, you know, they know what they're doing now. There yeah. are one or two exceptions in the office, mm. the yeah. office but you know, most people, oh okay. fait. Mm. Older relatives, it's like going back in time eight months.
1: Awful, awful. It's it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> and do, do you know? Do you know the, the other thing is? I had a, I had an aunt who obviously was getting her kids to be her IT support in house, literally in house. And uh, she we, she kind of got online, and she then went um you know she wanted to show us around her living room and her Christmas decorations in her house and stuff like that. And she didn't realise that obviously with Zoom there's no camera in the back of like the back of it do you know what i mean so she's just picking it up going like this going yeah can you see like can you see the christmas tree yeah can you see this yeah and put a wreath there and we're all like no no no, we can't see it you got you got to turn you got to turn the laptop that way right and she's like well what what do you mean i'm just holding it as if it was a camera oh that went on for about 10 15 minutes that was very embarrassing
2: (laughs)
0: I know on the show we've spoken about the fact that, you know, it's been the growth of Gen X and the baby boomers and all that kind of stuff. And I don't want to be ageist. (laughs) But my my elderly relatives have reminded me that sometimes, Mm. sometimes stereotypes are true.
1: Yeah, very, very funny. And also, I I think now, you know, when we've used it for work, we kind of know how far we need to sit from the, the laptop, how close. I mean you know i had some relatives that were like literally like here you could see under their nose and it was just oh just take a step back take a step back um they they haven't mastered the art of not speaking over each other so suddenly there's this like raucous of everyone talking and then you're like whoa whoa, whoa wait 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 and then everyone gets quiet and then they erupt again it's like oh my word this is <laughs> oh hey <laughs> christmas in 2020 eh one to remember absolutely Uh, and i hope it's the only one only one like this because it was shit
0: Um, you know what i'm not gonna make any predictions
1: (laughs) no done being optimistic are you
0: no i'm just i just don't think it's worth tempting fate Yeah, Uh, fair uh, enough anyway um Mm. today's interview is a bit odd because it starts with a chat about how lovely it is in summer
1: (laughs) yeah Uh, i did think that
0: quite jarring. Um, But nonetheless, this is a really interesting chat. It's with Caroline Hargrove, who's the CTO at Babylon Health. We'll go into the interview now. We'll come back with some thoughts and commentary afterwards. So on today's show, we are joined by Caroline Hargrove, CTO at Babylon Health. How are you this
2: morning? Very well, thank you, David.
0: Enjoying the lovely weather, I I assume. I can see it streaming in through the window behind you.
2: Yes, I am so pleased that we have some lovely summer days when uh, even late in September like this is, is brilliant.
0: what I love is the British the British attitude around this. I was talking to a friend earlier it was, Oh, well, you know, it's one last week of summer. And it's like, well, steady on, you never know. It might last longer than a week. It's it's been kind of late October before and it's been quite warm. So <laughs> fingers crossed this isn't it. But exactly. that, it is lovely to enjoy it whilst we can. Uh anyway, that aside, we've obviously got you on the show to talk about Babylon health. Whilst Babylon are a or a well-known brand, I think, in the UK. We do have a global audience. And that said, there might be people in the UK who aren't familiar with you. So before we get into anything else, do you just want to describe who and what Babylon Health are?
2: Yeah, Babylon is a technology company, global technology company now, I might add, um, with the ambitious mission of um, putting accessible and affordable healthcare in the hands of everybody on Earth. So what does that mean? It means that we develop um, digitally... Uh, Enhanced tools with uh, often AI backed that empower people to get more knowledge about their health. And, um, you know, as an example, you can do video calls 24 7, and that gives people more access to care early and more information, and often um, solves problems uh, very quickly. Um, and we work internationally. So we're in, uh, for example, in the UK, Canada, US. Miranda with um, full clinical care services and our AI. And we also have AI services in Asia in 11 countries and also in the Middle East and in a growing number of places.
0: So before we get, we'll probably circle back to several of those comments. J- just so we understand, what is your role with, within the business? We, kind of, we said CTO. CTO to me uh, would normally, I suppose, be dealing very much with uh the development of services, and also possibly dealing with external, with external partners. But but maybe it's more of an inward, inward-looking role at Babylon. It would just be interesting to find out how you fit into the organisation.
2: Yeah, Babylon is maybe a bit more inward-looking. Where I look after the AI and the technology part um, right. of the business, and it's it's about um, bridging what our product um, side, what we want to achieve, and how to achieve it, how to scale it. How to enhance um, from what we develop in our AI and how does that fit into the products? And how do we make this um, uh, how do we make sure that it delivers to the to the patients?
0: So you, you mentioned that you're a global business. Um, I suppose one of the interesting points would be how you protect the sovereignty of that data. My rudimentary understanding was that healthcare data for UK citizens had to stay in the UK, and that might not be entirely accurate. So it, it it also is an interesting point because obviously you've got a huge amount of data there from Africa, from Asia, from Europe, etc. The more that you're able to make sense of that and to crunch it, possibly the better patient outcomes and the better the opportunity to keep people out of hospital. So I suppose the need to comply to... Uh, each national uh, country's legislation, but also to make the most of that data must be an interesting tightrope to walk.
2: Absolutely. I would say that this is one of the challenges of global healthcare. And it's totally understandable that countries want to keep data um, in their country. But often they don't necessarily realise the implications of doing this. Now, if, if you're the US, if you're the UK, I would say it's, it's probably not. People don't give it that much thought because we have an infrastructure that the size of the of the population, the market to 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 totally support um, the kind of business that we're running. But when you are talking about countries that where we really want to make a big difference, like Miranda, that's a completely different proposition. Because what people forget is that in terms of data sovereignty, there's many aspects to it. And in the things that will touch it, for example, will be um, security. So we're used to using a cloud provider, say like um, AWS, and they're huge and they will work, they have a massive workforce working just on security to make sure that on sort of cyber attacks and so on, when you put, uh, and, 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 not just on cybersecurity, security, but also on availability, so it make sure that it gives a really good service, they invest a lot of money in this. If you go into a country and you have to do everything locally, you're, you often have, you might think, oh, well, the data stays local, that's good. But actually often just, from a security standpoint, from cyber attacks or from a, a resilience or, or availability perspective, it's not as good. So we often have to weigh up the uh, the advantages of the perceived advantages of having the data in country like I get it from a you don't want your citizens data to be uh, not uh, or to be violated somehow or to be at the mercy of a say, a, a company that is perceived as potentially, you know, you might be in political conflict with with the country that 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 company is from, therefore, it will Give you more autonomy if, if that's not happening. But uh, but as I said, this, this comes at a cost, and at times that cost can be quite high. Now, the, there's also the cost of actually running the service. So if you are um, a small country, and you, you have to deploy the entire architecture to run it, it's hard for us as a company to do this affordably. And therefore, scaling to other countries like that is difficult. But to your point earlier, the main thing for us as well is, is the accessibility of that data to do a feedback loop and then improve the product. Now as much as again in the US we can do this because we can put a team and we do have um, people based in the US that can handle this, it's not something that we can afford to do in every country that we go in to be able to analyze the data there. So. But the, that data sovereignty has many different layers, and there are there's an amount of of anonymity that countries will let us do in order to be able to uh, either process some of the data externally or process the aggregate data to at least inform on say um, prevalence of certain diseases or or risk factors for certain in certain area to say um, help a country. Do provisions for their own healthcare um, by processing that data, but for us to do that in every country is not really feasible. So this is why that conversation is always ongoing, and and, and it's it's a difficult one.
0: And I suppose as a as a community of health tech companies globally, who is having that dialogue with those countries and the elected leaders in those countries or the people who are setting policy in that in those countries is 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 a big part of this right and i suppose internally there must be some tension between not tension maybe that's the wrong word but some dialogue between doctors or medical professionals and technologists and then investors because everyone everyone will have slightly different aims in terms of what they're looking for, right? I mean, the, the doctors, I suppose, will be looking at patient outcomes and the technologists will be looking to support the medical professionals, but also thinking about security concerns, whereas an investor will be looking at growth and return on
2: the business. Absolutely. And I think you've put the, the nail on the head there In you hit the nail on the head by totally seeing how a complex environment it is in in healthcare, because ultimately very, very few countries and maybe all countries can't afford healthcare to everyone unless we do drastic improvements on how we deliver care because it's it's so expensive because we are reliant on on doctors and and people to, to do it. And if we want to use technology to leverage this and and actually access to more people, more care. These questions cannot be judged. so we need to address them. And and you know I I have conversation, um, very interesting conversation with the World Economic Forum, as well as um, say the go- government of Rwanda uh, regularly on this because they want to see from their perspective, which is totally right. They also want to think about getting their country up to using the best technology out there and actually for it for the country the size of rwanda which is 12 million people they have two thousand doctors it, it's it's you have to leverage that in order to to really give affordable care to people and how do we do this well we 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 use nurses and prescribing nurses and there's there's a, a like a, a pyramid a, a triage levels so that we can help get people to the right point of care for what they need. Um, but to do that, we we hire local doctors, local nurses. We use our software there. It's run there. But it's difficult to be affordable because we had to branch it to be able to run it in country in this way. It means the latest technology that we develop for other countries that are running on AWS, for example, we can not deploy there. And we don't want to offer a service that isn't as good there. So it's it's it, we're constant tension. So what we're exploring with them is can we at least put some of our services on, say, a cloud infrastructure that is not in Rwanda because there's no cloud infrastructure. In fact, there's no providers in in Africa at the moment. Um, it's to be able to do this, it, you have to be able to to be fine with the idea that the data may be in transit for a cloud provider somewhere else and yet just only keep the personal data in country and store it in country. So this is our compromise at the moment in the sense that then we can offer the services because what we want to do is offer the same quality of services everywhere. Not just because it's best for the for the patient but it makes business sense and that one works both sides because otherwise we'd have to do bespoke software for countries like rwanda and we can't afford to do that not when we have many rwandas you know so So, so, so
0: scale scale is 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 a big factor when it comes to affordability i suppose that's where tech can really help mitigate some of these regional differences you're talking there about you know it's important to keep personal data in country, but you know you have to accept there will be some data in transit. Is it possible to truly anonymize data? Look just just speaking from a purely from a tech point of view, because I have seen articles that say you know if you've got a fragmented data set, actually you can put you can put it back together and work out whose data is who quite easily. so I suppose that that is a technology challenge right that that you have to try and face up to and work out how you can how you can solve
2: uh, absolutely and um... And that's been really well documented that there's some very poor way of anonymizing data, especially with with small data sets. And people, the risk here is people don't want it to be traced back to a patient. I totally understand that. In our model of work and and how we use it at Babylon for uh, improving our AI, the risk is slightly different because of the way we use the AI. So a lot of AI is used as machine learning, so essentially it's it's kind of multi-dimensional um, uh, linear regression. But that's not what we do for the the, the models that we use for um, both in our health check, which is looking at forward um, prediction of diseases, uh, potential diseases based on your risk factors and and on on any acute condition that you may have, and you want to look at a symptom checker. And the reason for that is that it's built more like a, um, it's more the Bayesian type model. It's a probabilistic graphical model. And that's a risk factor um, disease and symptoms uh, link. And that means that what we do with the patient data is we use it for testing the model, but not so much for training it in the sense of a machine learning algorithm. So it's in the, in our case, it's the risk is slightly lower in, in that sense, because we use for patients who've, um, agreed for their data to be used for um, AI purposes. We use it to create case cards on which we test our model. And when our model um, fails or it's not good enough, we then loop in and we loop in doctors to help us fix the the, the model. So it's a more it's a semi manual process. It's not a fully automated process because no. even a doctor doing a consultation is one opinion it's not a gold standard so we can't have that data going straight away into training a model because it may not be right and and so at this stage now this could change in future because obviously um, ai changes and so on and, and and when we do have a lot and lots and lot, lot of data it probably will be more accurate and and more um and with having so much data, then the risk of the anonymization being able to be found back is lower. But at this stage, especially when we go into a new region, that's not it's not possible to do. Going into a new region without having much data, you you wouldn't be able to use a machine learning type approach anyway.
0: Now, look, you, you talked about the fact that you look after AI. Uh, recently, you've talked about imagination AI in a, in, a, in a recent press release. And it might be worth you kind of explaining what, what the business means by that. Um, there are some techn- technologists that would say that what you're claiming, kind of imagination AI, isn't isn't viable. And I found that quite an interesting kind of dialogue because does it really matter what the tech community, you know, the tech community gets very, very hot on that's not AI, that's machine learning, that's X, Y, Z. You know, if patients are getting better patient care and patient outcomes, does it really matter about the internal wranglings of semantics amongst the tech community?
2: That's a really good point. I, I, you're totally right. The patients don't care. Patients want better outcomes, and that's it. From a from an AI perspective, it's more the fact that um, so far, a lot of what we, or what the press mainly calls AI, tends to be machine learning. As I said, it's kind of a uh, multidimensional linear regression, you know, it's a correlation based type algorithms. And in healthcare, we know that what the, what the doctors try to do when you try to diagnose someone is try to find causation. So what we're working on and, and what we're saying here is we have, we have researchers at Babylon who look at trying to improve our AI. Now, we don't do that live on our products. We do this. We get it peer-reviewed and we want to make sure that these, these concepts make sense before they're even tested to see whether it would make our product better. Like We, we do have a separation in order to, to let our scientists come up with you know, what ideas might, might help. In this particular case, it's using uh, a system that is uh, it's called counterfactual simulations, and the idea here is to try to imagine like alternative realities or what-if scenarios, but in a sort of, in a sense, for example, that like you'd say, um, would this symptom be present if I had a different disease? And if I if I cured that disease, would that get rid of those symptoms? So you kind of go at it the other way, on, so you do it both directions in order to try to just do a correlation. Oh, I have these symptoms, therefore I probably have this disease. You also look at, what if I cured this disease? Would that cure these symptoms? This is that kind of approach. It's it's slightly, that's why they call it counterfactual. It's slightly, and at times, difficult to get your head around the question you're asking. But it is to, it's from a mathematical perspective. It's trying to get you to to find whether there is a cause and effect on a symptom to a disease or a risk factor to a disease rather than just a correlation. Now, I totally get you that this is this matters to the people who are in that sphere in great detail. What it matters to the doctors and to, to the patients and to the users generally is whether or not that will make it better. And this is what we're trying to work on. And and we work in a very regulated environment, and we wouldn't put anything in our in our products without it being tested and showed that on a safety perspective it meets the, the, the targets and so on. So it's not we're not being cavalier at all. We just want to push push the, the envelope and keep on learning as to how do we make this better? It's really hard to do. It's it's hard to do. If, if it wasn't hard, we would already have done it for a while, a while ago. But it's difficult because we all present, you can see it in COVID, we all present one disease in many, many, many different ways. And and because we also have other things that might be wrong with us or other Physiology that are different from each other other risk factors are different. So how do we try to help? So common condition normally quite straightforward. The rare conditions that you go in the harder it is, you know There there was a paper published not that long ago um, explaining how How long it takes in the UK to find out um, Or find a diagnosis to get a diagnosis for a rare disease and it's something like nine contact hours with with clinicians before you, before the, the most people get a diagnosis for a rare condition. It's hard, it's a hard thing to do. But this is the kind of thing that if we put, keep pushing our AI and keep pushing the learning that we do, we will hopefully have support for our doctors helping for at least some of those really difficult scenarios to be improved by, you know, by the fact that we can learn and keep learning from decisions that they make and their colleagues make and over time, uh, there's a body of knowledge that 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 accumulates but it it's not an easy yeah, it's not an easy um, sphere to be in and therefore we do need to have those debates in order to 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 bring the body of knowledge up
0: i suppose all of this kind of strikes at the heart of how you keep patients at the heart of the business going forward uh everything that we're kind of talking around and you know there there's there's definitely the kind of the aspect that you are a, a private company but you're working with public bodies you're working with the government and i suppose there is that slight kind of you know when when you're when you're going into a a trust within the nhs and then providing a triage service the public might see you as part of the nhs but you're also not so who 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 makes sure that 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 voice, that light is kept alive within the organization and that ultimately when when push comes to shove, it's not the investors that are calling the shots?
2: Well, certainly at Babylon, you can imagine we we hire, we, we have in our workforce, a lot of doctors, a lot of scientists, a lot of engineers, but a lot of doctors as well. We've joined this, me included, because of the mission, because we want to make a difference. The last thing we want to be is is perceived as not being safe, not being um, not not being to the standard in order to to reach our mission. And and the other thing you've got to remember is that actually, you know, every GP surgery in the UK, for example, is a mini business. They get paid by the government to by by the number of heads that they have. It's a capitation model, right? So. We are actually the biggest GP surgery now in the UK. If you register with us, you'll have your care for free like you you do in any other GP surgeries in the UK. We just are working towards doing this more efficiently in a larger scale, But you can rate our doctors, you can leave feedback, something that many, many surgeries don't do, right? So at the heart, if our patients don't like us, they won't use us. And it will make it very vocal. So I, I totally get you that, that there is a tension between the two. And you don't want the economics to dominate. I, I, I totally understand that. But when you're a company hiring doctors, and doctors go into the profession to do good, to improve outcomes, they really keep us in check. Like It's, it's constantly a, a debate within the company when we want to do something. How are we measuring outcomes? How are we going to do this? It's not easy. But we always have that voice.
0: Obviously, we're you know we're questioning it because it's it's a question that's being put forward to health tech. I think more broadly, um, and Babylon are one of the biggest names in that space who've been successful and been in the public eye. Is it as much an issue to do with the fact that I suppose for most people in this country they they think of healthcare, they think of the NHS, they think of the public sector, they think they own it, and now the the realities of how the the system works are being made more obvious and maybe some of the slightly connotation slightly negative connotations that come in with tech and and people's general suspicion of tech and and how big tech in particular has has been seen to subvert maybe some processes
2: i i totally agree with you and and it's interesting because covid has made some changes to that again you know a terrible pandemic but we had to adopt things like telemedicine way more in order to help keep the hospitals um, freer and actually I think a lot of people have realized that they can use this and they can use it and and get a, a really good service this way so they're realizing that that doesn't necessarily diminish You know, because we use more technology that doesn't make their service kind of substandard it just means maybe quicker access and on at least many of occasions a video conference is is a very good way of seeing a doctor if you need to see somebody in person we have clinics and, and and everyone else wants people to go in person when you need to but to be able to do that more as safely as possible it's good that the people who don't need to do it can do it from the safety of their own homes so that pandemic has helped in that way but but it is it is a debate that we will continue to do and as we said david definitely we get more scrutiny in this country and and you've got to also think because we offer end-to-end services and we do ai and end-to-end services we we are under more scrutiny and there are some of our competitors who just do the ai and are based say in the us or in asia they can actually come up with and innovate in their ai much faster than we can because we're regulated by the mdr which is uh, just coming up um which is about uh, putting symptom checkers as, as a class two medical device. Our health check um, is a class one medical device. These are not medical devices in the US. They're not in Japan, you know, in, in plenty of other countries. And so weirdly, it means that by us having to comply to regulatory standards, and therefore at each release that we do, we need a whole body of evidence that what we're doing is still safe and it does it, and it will it meets those standards and that way of testing and we we need a lot of, of supplementary information and show all our testing and it's and we're doing this because we want to be showing that our our we meet those standards but actually in terms of improvements um some of our competitors do it much faster than us because they just are not regulated like this so it's a it's an interesting paradigm in this case is that you do want safety so you you put in those regulatory standards but not everyone's on the same playing field and actually by sometimes those regulatory standard standards could slow us down to make it even safer because it would be better safer so you know it's look we we, we do that and we comply and we're ISO uh, 13485 uh, 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 we are compliant with 13 ISO 13485, uh, and we are going to be uh, audited by our auditors yearly on this and then we also get audited on the Class 2 medical devices. We do all of this, but just saying that it's not often a, uh, a completely uh, equal playing field for, for people like us in the technology in health that want to play globally
0: look I think it's a fascinating area we could probably go on and on talking about it there's there's so many interesting kind of points around it but I really do appreciate your time to 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 talk to us talk about some of the issues around data talk to us about some of the issues around AI hope you get a chance to go out and enjoy the sunshine before it does disappear and um yeah look thank you for your time
2: thank you David I really enjoyed
0: that accessible healthcare for everyone on earth there's something we can all all get behind um I think this is really interesting because Babylon Health are an organization that haven't been without criticism um, mm. over the last few years. Funnily enough, I was just kind of reminding myself with some of the the critique that has come their way um, before we hit record. There was an article in Wired in 2019 about um, how Babylon had disrupted the NHS, but it had caused huge extra costs from some NHS trusts. And because um, you could basically sign up for Babylon's GP surgery anywhere where you were located all of a sudden their gp surgery had become um one of the largest of the seven thousand gp surgeries in the uk if you count babylon as a gp surgery only 23 practices are bigger it was placing huge financial burden on hammersmith and 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 fulham for example so from an, an administrative point of view there had been some critique, and also from an AI point of view, there had been criticism from clinicians saying that it wasn't really all it cracked up to be, and that marketing was getting in the way. So look, all of that said, I thought it was really interesting to hear from Caroline, because there was one thing there that resonated with me in a a big way, which was, it's not about being cavalier, but it is about pushing the envelope. Mm -hmm. And that currently, it takes nine contact hours before you get a diagnosis. So therefore, we have this need to keep pushing technology. And I do think that's true. And I think there's this really interesting discourse that needs to happen between actually making patients aware. And I think this is where it falls down a lot. Okay. Yeah. Administrative burden and cost aside. Mm -hmm. If you're a patient signing up for a service, how aware are you of how accurate or not, you know, and how much is that a concern? You know, Caroline says there that, you know they'll, they'll only be a success if you know if the patients don't like us they won't use us. But when you're signing up, you or I, yeah. how trustworthy is it? How much information do you have? And as so long as you have that information, actually,
1: yeah,
0: then pushing the envelope is a good thing.
1: Yeah, I think I think also that people that are like signing up, I think they're only. Do you think do you think they're only questioning it because it is Babylon Health and it's some it's a private company and it doesn't say NHS. You know England and it doesn't say your local kind of NHs trust so that's why they kind of query it more do you reckon it, that that's more um
0: I, I think there is that fact that it's a private business and therefore yeah. there there does need to be some extra scrutiny and and as we discussed in the interview you know who who are you accountable for and, and outputs mm. and all those kind of bits and pieces um, but there has been some critic critique from from clinicians who've been mm. there mm. Um, but fundamentally the, the 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 kind of the push for, for people at the minute. And the reason why in the pandemic you could really see that these services are taking off is because you don't want to go into a GP surgery and put yourself at risk.
1: Yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. It.
0: But you should therefore also be given as much information as you can to make sure that you're making a choice about how you're accessing services and what those services are really, you know, I don't know. Do you, cause I'll be perfectly blunt. When, when I go to the GP surgery mm. with my wife, there are certain doctors that we want to see and certain doctors that we avoid.
1: Correct. Yeah. 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 And I think, I think also at the same time, a lot of that is done on how you receive care or how you receive, um, you know, the, the attention of a medical professional. And and I'm the same, to be honest. And, and, you know, the odd time when I rang up to get an appointment, I've requested, Oh, can it be with Dr. So-and-so or, you know, whatever. So I completely get that. There's per, personal preferences, and 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 you know, kind of people want to be be seen, but also at the same time, I guess when it's something like Babylon, you just want to make sure that firstly, it's about your personal data, right? I mean, when we think about personal data, we think about credit card, phone numbers, emails. That aside, this is your health data, right?
0: more which now, is possibly one of the most valuable data sets available, especially exactly, for insurance review.
1: Exactly, exactly. And also this year we've seen how important, you know, your health, your background, your your health history has been, and how you know how important that can be for your future in terms of you know vaccine or not. We're not going to get into that argument, but you know, kind of seeing how that can that can actually be used. I think with when people are signing up, yeah, that kind of level of apprehension is probably good because um, you want to make sure that it is kind of, you know, as legit as it can be and, and you know, they are providing that service. But also at the same time, I think we need to then also just use our own brains a little bit. You know, don't take everything and say, oh, yeah, technology is the answer to everything. I think what they're doing is great. I think what they're doing, I don't really want to call them a disruptor because I think that set, probably sets the wrong message um you know because i think their their goal is the same as any nhs trust or any you know kind of i don't know surgery or whatever so i think what they're doing is great but at the same time i get why people would be a little bit cautious do you know what mm. i mean um and especially now you know what is it nine contact hours till you get a diagnosis is that what,
0: Probably, uh, that's, yeah. that's
1: the thing right average. yeah and, and I that's
0: health healthcare as a whole not babylon
1: yeah exactly so i think in order for that to improve and use AI, we need data. We need people to offer to use the service. Um, and that's the only way it's going to improve.
0: Um, and I think the reason that maybe people get head up about it is that you can use the word AI to um, Joe blogs on the street and hmm. it sounds very fancy. And like, it's this wonderful thing that's going to give you all the correct answers hmm. where actually perhaps that's a little bit misleading Um I think that services like this are are fantastic uh, innovations and will lead us to better outcomes, but it's not quite the same as me or you going to a doctor's surgery and really understanding what a good service may or may not be. Yeah, Um, I'm not a doctor, fine, but I know what good, from a person, from a doctor in person, I know what good um, service feels like, Hmm. and I know... I kind of have a grasp of what competence feels like but mm. when you're dealing with AI and a virtual GP and a virtual diagnosis tool that's far harder to for you yeah, or I to make that judgement.
1: Yeah 100% and and it's a trust that that's what it is right it's the trust it's when you go to a doctor you look at them in the eyes a lot of the time you know when I've had kind of a surgery or whatever you kind of look at them you know man to man or man to woman whatever um I've always had a guy, so that's why I said, man-to-man. But, you know, it, and you you kind of understand their experiences. They say things and, and put you in certain scenarios that I think only a human being can do. So that's why I don't think you'll ever replace, you know, the medical yeah. profession or doctors. Absolutely not. Do I think it can work alongside to help reduce the pressures, help reduce the numbers, help with the diagnosis times, you know, that sort of thing, 100%. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think, okay. yeah, go on. Yeah, and I think I mean, I mean what doctors can learn is using the technology for their benefit, and what Babylon could maybe use down the line is using you know what good service feels like for their kind of virtual GP, you know types of people that they'd be speaking to, you know types of things that they're saying. And I think when you mention artificial intelligence, people just don't have trust in it, right? I mean look back at the either tip, they don't have
0: trust in it or they think it's a silver bullet that's the answer to everything and, yeah and exactly
1: calling it ai isn't
0: necessarily yeah 100%
1: no exactly and, and also when you boil down to it it's it's a piece of software it's not mystic meg do you know what i mean it's not it's not going to tell you it's, it's not going to tell you kind of your your yeah, future or, not or things meg like like that, think, but right? you know that that's kind of where it is i think um from from that side yeah
0: yeah <laughs> yeah um look just just another interesting thing um another interesting thing that's worth mentioning um caroline obviously is cto and she talks about the fact that in the us and japan you know there's less regulation around a medical device what is a medical device there's there's less regulation Mm. and therefore there's a complaint about the playing field and she says, you know, it's it's better, safer, so you ch- you should go slower. But you can kind of hear the technologist in her going, "It'd be great to move a bit quicker and keep pace with the competition." And that that I think is an interesting tension as well. That um, as as difficult as it must be for a technology organisation, they do need to go slowly. They do need to push the envelope, absolutely, but they're working in a field that is he- heavily regulated for a reason. And actually, uh, from everything that I've seen uh, and read over the years, I'm not sure I'd trust something that was rubber stamped by the states and told me that it was a, it was a good piece of medical uh, a medical device. Uh, there's been far too many horror stories on that front, um, and uh, and and I think I think heavily a heavily regulated environment is a good thing.
1: and I think now more so than ever especially after the year and you know the biggest well the biggest thing that's happened this year um the more the regulations I think the better it is and the better administered kind of um you know treatments are and and diagnoses are I think that's what will help because I don't know what the numbers are I'm sure in years down the line there will be some sort of an inquiry some sort of inquest um into the data, into numbers that we're seeing every day. I'm not here to start conspiracies. I'm not saying you know numbers are wrong, things are wrong, but what we need to do, I think, is we just need to we we, we need to rely on regulations as much as we can, and listen to the regulators and and what they say. Whether it's a new drug, a vaccine, a new kind of medical system, um, <clears throat> I think we listen to those. We'll be in a better place. Um, and don't become one of those people that uh, that's become a, a kind of regulator, you know, yeah. researcher in the last few few weeks. So yeah, yeah. that's what I would say.
0: Well, look, I need to wrap up. We need to go. We've probably already chatted for long enough, given the length of the interview. But uh, <laughs> Akish, Happy New Year. Happy Everyone Year. else is saying Happy New Year. And uh, yeah, hopefully twenty twenty. Uh, is uh, consigned to history in 2021 won't be uh, a, a steaming turd in the dumpster in quite the same way
1: <laughs> keep listening to us next year as well we ain't going nowhere <laughs> I don't-